0: Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracy Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Uh, Dr. Hannah Power, a big welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Dr Power is a Senior Lecturer and Researcher at the University of Newcastle, focusing on waves, coastal systems and the influence of water movement on marine and coastal environments. Um, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Hannah, you grew up in Sydney and um, when we were talking before, you mentioned that as a kid, you've loved the beaches of the south coast of New South Wales. You learned to scuba dive on the Great Barrier Reef when you were a kid, and that these have been kind of major inspirations for you and um, your career path and your research. And um, it's quite funny how many of Australia's marine scientists have been inspired at a young age by their experiences of blue spaces. Um, Is there any one place that really kind of set that spark for you?
1: Yeah, well, I guess there were there were a couple of places. So I was really lucky as a kid that we I had the holidays on the south coast of New South Wales. Almost every summer, reliably, we'd spend lots of time at the beach, lots of time in the water, lots of time, you know, snorkelling, uh, surfing, all of those kind of things. Um, and so I've always been around the ocean. I always have felt really comfortable in and around the ocean, you know, swimming and being in the sea is one of those things that i find so enjoyable and so calming and restorative and so so much a part of who i am yeah. um and then it was also so that's always been a part of my life but then uh when i was a sort of young teenager i was lucky enough to go on a holiday up to the great barrier reef where i went to scuba dive and um that was one of those moments where, you know, I'd always been interested in science. Um, I'd always liked sort of mathematical and scientific things. I'd always been really curious, but it was learning to dive on the Great Barrier Reef, which was that moment where I thought, I, I want to study this stuff. And it was, I really want to study coral reef systems. I really want to study the ecosystems, the organisms that form coral reefs and so on. And so that was, you know, as a young teenager, that was an idea that sort of got stuck in my head. And um, it stayed there so much that I enrolled in a marine science degree at university. And I got to second year and realized that it wasn't so much biology that really captured my attention, but it was the oceanography side of things that I really enjoyed. And so having that diversity in my degree meant that I was able to find something that I didn't even really know could be a career path. You know, no one tells you when you're at high school, hey, you can study beaches for a living, (laughs) you know? so I was really lucky to kind of fall into that side of uh, marine and coastal science.
0: Um, and that's really cool that you mentioned as well about loving maths and these places and the, kind of the assumption that it would be, well, biology, but... Um Yeah, you can study beaches. I I wish someone had told me that when I was at school. (laughs) It's actually a job studying beaches. Um, That's pretty awesome. Your research and teaching, it's taken you all over the coastlines of Australia. You've worked in beaches, rocky coastlines, muddy coastlines, mangroves, coral reefs, underwater seascapes. I mean, that's a phenomenal range of habitats that this has taken you into. Um, Is one of them your favorite?
1: Oh, I, I don't know that I could pick a favourite study site. I don't know. I, you know, that might always be a bit like trying to pick a favourite child. Um, look, they're so diverse. You know, there's the sort of rugged rocky coastlines of the south coast of New South Wales. There's the beautiful long beaches of northern New South Wales. I mean, how do you pick between a sort of rugged rocky sandy coastline on a stormy day and a coral reef looking shiny and sparkly on a sunny day? You know, they're They've got different things that they offer and they're all beautiful environments. And I love the diversity that you get along our coasts.
0: That's awesome. What does a day studying coasts and beaches look like for you? So it
1: varies so much and it entirely depends on what project that I'm working on. So, you know, like every other scientist, there are days that are entirely sat in front of a computer (laughs) looking at data and crunching through numbers and trying to make figures that explain what we're trying to see. But when we're collecting data, a sort of typical day doing, for example, an experiment on how waves behave on beaches and how they move sand around and how they change after they break will involve typically uh, getting up reasonably early, carrying lots of stuff down to the (laughs) beach. Sometimes we're lucky and we have uh, vehicle access to the beach and we can get our car onto the beach and get our gear down really easily. But often it involves carrying lots of bulky, heavy gear down to the beach setting it up, often we'll be putting equipment into the water. We work really um, strongly as teams. So there's a lot of, um, you know, large equipment that we need to put into the water. It's about securing it down, making sure that it's safe, it's gonna stay in position. Um, And then oftentimes there's a bit of a lull in the middle of the day. We've got all our gear set up, it's all recording, it's all monitoring what we want it to be monitoring. And then during the middle of the day, often we are kind of just maintaining it, checking it, staying in position. We might be um, surveying the beach to see how the sand is moving around on the beach, how the beach is changing in its shape. And then often at the end of the day, it's the reverse process. It's get in the water again, pull all the gear out, pack it up, take it back to wherever (laughs) it's staying and cleaning it all down so that nothing is left covered in a layer of salt and sand.
0: Nice. And um, that kind of research, it has some really important applied outcomes as well. Um, Understanding water movement and what's happening to to shores is really important, for example, in helping people enjoy those spaces um, and enjoy them safely. Like some of your research in um, intertidal rocky shelves. Um, can be really dangerous places for people to go to, but your work is helping people work out when it's safe to go there, right? You've worked with national parks to develop tools people can access?
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, I worked with colleagues in uh, the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment recently to develop an online wave risk forecast tool for a site called the Figure Eight Pools in the Royal National Park, south of Sydney, and this was a site that became uh, social media famous. Yeah. And so it was. It went from having, you know, a few thousand visitors across an entire summer to having a few hundred visitors to a thousand visitors in a weekend. Wow. And so it was this huge challenge for parks to manage because... They had a real shift in the demographic of the visitor. They went from people who were out doing their hikes and who were used to being out, out and about and, you know, had an understanding of natural systems and, and the sort of risks associated with them to having international tourists who would fly into Sydney, do the Opera House on Monday, Bondi Beach on Tuesday, yeah. figure eight pools on Wednesday. Wow. And so it was a completely different demographic. So I worked with colleagues in state government and also in parks to... Uh, We we did some monitoring to look at what sort of conditions, what sort of wave heights offshore and what sort of tide conditions drive these wave hazards onto the platform because with that increase in visitor numbers, there was a huge increase in the number of injuries and incidents. And it's a remote site. It takes about an hour to walk in and an hour to walk out. There's no road access. So if you get injured down there, it's really, really problematic. So we looked at what conditions drive the wave hazards and what sort of conditions we get the most problematic wave hazards. And we used all that information to develop a live tool that uses forecasts for waves and tides to tell you what the hazard rating is. So is it a high hazard? Is it a low hazard? And so you can look and get a four day forecast about when is gonna be the best and safest time to
0: go. Um, that's, that's fantastic. It's a really good example of, um, of how understanding what's happening to coastal systems is important in how we use them. Um, because people, yeah, they love to go there. Um, you've also spent a great deal of your research on coral reefs. I've Just done some work uh, on coral close reefs, Close yeah. to my heart.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, they're beautiful environments. I can entirely understand why you would want to be a coral reef scientist.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and you're looking at the benefit of coral reefs in terms of providing coastal protection, right, for islands and atolls and coasts, how they um, interact with wave action. That's been some of the research you've done?
1: Yeah, so we've done some work looking at how waves behave um, after they break on coral reefs and how much Having a coral reef in front of an island or a shoreline can uh, protect that shoreline behind it because obviously, you know, coral reefs are really shallow, waves break on them. And so that process dissipates lots of the energy in the waves. And so by the time the waves get to the island shoreline that's behind the reef, um, they've got lot less, a lot less energy in them. And so the reef is actually providing a protective service to that island. And so one of the uncertainties associated with climate change and sea level rise is. How will those protective services change? So will the coral continue to grow upwards with the sea level rise and therefore the sort of protective service will be about the same? Will we see degradation to the reef that will result in more wave energy getting across that reef? Um, Or will the sea level rise so fast that the coral reef can't keep up with it? And so we will also see more wave energy getting behind those reef systems. So there's still some um, uncertainties around some of that stuff, um, but you know, it, it's something of concern and something that we need to factor into when we're trying to manage our tropical shorelines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because um, we know things like bleaching events, which is which is what I study, um, actually can really drive that loss of complexity of corals really quickly because mm-hmm. they die and they start to get eroded and and they break down quite quickly. So um, for some places, that that's really important that interaction between. Uh, what's happening out at the edges of the reef and then what happens closer into shore.
1: So as you say, you know, bleaching degrades the coral and often it ends up eroding. So there are actually, that's another thing that can happen is you may not necessarily actually have a um, net decrease in the level of the reef relative to the water level, but that loss of structural complexity can actually impact the waves because the, the roughness, the structure within a coral reef can actually cause more wave energy to be dissipated. So if you lose that structural complexity, you can also lose some of the ability of a reef to dissipate wave energy.
0: How does that affect how we understand the impacts of climate change on, on places like coral reefs? Do we have really an answer as to whether um, you know the, the balance between sea level and climate change impacts how they're going to affect? Is it, is it going to be kind of a uniform or are all reefs going to be a little bit different in how they respond? Yeah, so
1: as you would be aware, different reefs have different structural complexities. Different reefs sit at different levels relative to the mean sea level. And so all of these things are going to have an impact. It's also um, going to matter whether the reefs are really wide, whether they're really narrow. All of those things are going to be really, are going to result in really individual effects on different reefs and lots and lots of variability in terms of what climate change impacts we see on those reefs in terms of. the the protective services that they provide to anything behind them.
0: Yeah. Um, So water movement is really important for the biology of corals and the biology of reefs, and that's kind of an area where there's a bit of interest in can we engineer our way out of problems through engineering water movement? And, um, and your research would probably be able to talk a lot about the difference between like, internal water movement and surface water movement. Um, what, what do you think are some of the challenges in, in maybe applying engineering approaches to manipulate water movement around reefs? So, yeah, there are lots of
1: challenges in terms of manipulating water movement around reefs. Um, one of the challenges is that anytime you work in a marine environment, it's always a really challenging environment. You know, we, you, know you see the impacts of being in the marine environment on structures that we have in the marine environment on boats. You know, it's it's a tough environment out there. The salt is really degrading. Um, you know you have storms all of these things so it's just a, a, a really challenging environment to start with um it's also challenging in that you know I don't know that we really have a great idea about how all the mass circulation happens you know at different levels within um you know within say the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park area you know there are areas where you've got channels you know you've got um reefs that interrupt water flow you know it's it's hugely complex and so um, you know, altering water flow around a couple of reefs to maybe you know bring up some cooler water to cool down the reef to try to prevent bleaching events. Well, how is that going to affect the reefs that are downstream from that reef? How is that is that going to affect the ecological systems that are on the uh, seafloor between the coral reefs? You know, all yeah. of those things. There are often all these like flow-on implications that we don't necessarily think about when we think, oh, we'll, we'll do X to try to. Save this particular reef, but how is that going to affect everything else? You know, everything is so interconnected in a system like the reef.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Are there systems we can learn from in terms of making decisions or talking about engineered solutions in these kind of environments, in marine environments? Are there places it's been particularly successful? Yeah, look, I, I don't know that there are,
1: and I, I probably would want to fact check this, but I don't know that there are any really good examples of where we've engineered really significant solutions to try to protect reefs.
0: Yeah, um, in other re- in other habitats, not just reefs though, where we've manipulated water movement or, or waves or anything. Yeah, look, there are certainly examples where we've uh,
1: created sort of novel ecosystems to try to use natural systems as protective services, so replacing yeah. things that have been lost. So, for example, there was a recent article in the news maybe in the last couple of months about how in a few places around Boston Harbour in the United States, they've replaced, um, you know, intertidal wetland systems that were lost through the development of the harbour and they've built these, you know, sort of living defences to try to protect the developments that are behind them um, rather than having sort of hard structures like seawalls and so on. You know, and we know that other ecological systems provide really good protective services. So, for example, um, during the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, areas where mangroves were still intact along the coastlines had far fewer tsunami impacts than areas where the mangroves had been removed. So we know that these ecological systems provide protective services, but in a lot of places we've removed them, and that can have detrimental long-term effects.
0: Um, knowing all this about coastal erosion, tsunamis, wave action, does this influence where you choose to live or where you would think about living?
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. So, uh, I there are things that I'm conscious of that are risks, like for example, uh, large earthquake-generated tsunami or submarine landslide-generated tsunami. But they're not such significant risks that they're not things I'm willing to tolerate. So, for example. I live right by the coast in Newcastle and I'm I'm comfortable living by the coast in Newcastle because I realise that, you know, a large tsunami, an earthquake-generated tsunami would be warned about in Australia and the risk is very, very small. Um, But, for example, if I were buying property, I wouldn't be comfortable buying property that was built on sand, low-lying, immediately behind a beach because I know that the likelihood of coastal erosion or coastal inundation is significant enough that it's a risk that I'm not willing to tolerate.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. Nice. And that's where a lot of your research sits, isn't it, is really understanding how water movement and waves interact with the the coastline and the structures that are in place. Uh, One of the areas you've done a lot of work is beaches, and that's really topical in Australia at the moment with coastal erosion. Um, Have we fallen in love with some of our coasts at at one point in time and not really thought about how they're going to change in the decades to come? Yeah,
1: so a lot of the problems that we have along our coast in Australia are to do with the fact that, you know, the 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 location of a beach changes through time. You know, in, in calmer periods, waves will deliver more sand to the beach than they take away and the beach builds outwards towards the ocean. And you get really nice big wide beaches. And Then in storms, the waves tend to take sand offshore and put it into sandbars and so on offshore, and so the beach translates landward. So there's this constant back and forth. The system is constantly evolving and constantly moving around. But of course, every now and then, you get a really, really big storm, and that means that the beach translates further landward than it may have done in the last 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years. And so a lot, in a lot of places around Australia, what we've essentially done is built on what would be considered the active beach zone yeah. over a very long time scale. You know? yeah. And we talk about things like um, a return interval or an, or an annual exceedance probability. You know, and People will have heard about, you know, this is a one in 10 year flood event or a one in 20 year flood event, which means that on average, a one in 20 year flood event will occur yeah. on average once every 20 years, or alternatively, you could say there's a one in twenty chance of that event occurring in a given calendar year. So that doesn't mean that if you had one last year, you've, you're waiting 19 mm-hmm. years for the next one. It means that there's still another one in twenty chance of that happening this year. Now, because we, you know, um, haven't been building structures along the Australian coastline for all that long, you know, we've got sort of 200 years of building very fixed structures on the Australian coastline, 250, say. Um, We don't have a very long record of how much our coastal zone has fluctuated. And so what we've done is we've built properties and we've built fixed infrastructure that has a relatively long lifespan, so maybe 50, 70 years, on areas of our coastline that would be within the active beach zone on maybe a 1 in 20 or 1 in 40 year timescale. And that combined with sea level rise, we're starting to see the effects of that where we're having erosion into areas where we've put permanent infrastructure and that's causing a lot of problems at the moment.
0: With um with sea level rise, are there places that, that you can or the research can identify which are um, most at risk sooner um, in that process, considering the the those risk factors?
1: yeah so we can and there are certain areas where we see that um the shoreline is likely to translate further landwards than in other areas and that depends on depends on a whole bunch of different um, characteristics of that part of the coastline so it might be um you know how big are the dunes how high are the dunes how much sand is in the dunes because we can think of the dunes a little bit like a savings account you know when times get tough you dip into your savings account and when times get tough on the beach, the waves dip into the dune and pull sand out of the dune system. And then during calmer periods, those dunes build back up again. Yep. So if you've got a really big dune system with lots and lots of sand in it, there's more of a buffer there to protect any environments behind it. So areas with smaller dunes um, tend to be uh, more prone to uh, a loss of or the shoreline translating further landwards. But then there are all sorts of other factors. So, for example, whether or not you've got uh, rocky reefs, offshore, all of those kind of things play a role. So again, it's very, very site-specific. But for example, in New South Wales, um, you know, we see that coastal erosion is is one of these things that ends up in the news a lot. It ends up on the front pages of newspapers, it's on the radio, on TV, and so on. But if we compare our exposure, so how many properties we might think are potentially at risk and how much infrastructure is at risk, say, out to 2050 or 2100 on our open coast, it's actually about one-tenth of what is exposed around our estuaries due to sea level rise. And so it's actually our estuaries that are our really high risk areas. So, you know, we've got about 10 times as many properties at risk of being inundated around estuaries at high tide and storm tide levels than we have houses on the open coast being affected by coastal erosion.
0: Nice. That's really interesting because, and what you were saying as well about the benefit that those, you know, estuary environments have with the natural infrastructure of mangroves and things like that. These are um, often things that we are taking away as we build up those estuary habitats. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, you know, one of the things that often happens around estuaries is because they don't typically have very big waves, you know, on our open coast, we're used to seeing storm waves. We're used to seeing large waves impacting the beach. So we don't build very close to the waterline. Whereas on estuaries, we don't have that. And so people have built infrastructure and, you know, houses and roads and all sorts of stuff really, really close to the high tide level. So it doesn't take a lot of sea level rise. It doesn't take a very big uh, storm surge. those properties to be impacted because there's much less of a buffer in those systems
0: Um, often when we talk about modeling things into the future and understanding what's coming there's an assumption that that science and engineering can fix it Um, how how much are we relying on engineering against water waves wave action natural processes to get us out of these problems
1: Uh, to some extent We are, and I think to some extent we're going to have to have some conversations around relocating some things because we can't keep everything where it is. It's just there's so much infrastructure ultimately that will be at risk. Um and so there are going to be some really difficult conversations that we need to have. Um there are certainly engineering solutions that can be done. I mean, the Netherlands is a classic example, you know, how many people live below sea level in the Netherlands? You know, they but they've got a huge history of coastal engineering they've got you know centuries of expertise in coastal engineering and the community as a whole is used to the coast being an engineered thing in Australia we don't tend to have that idea that the coast is and can be an engineered thing we want a natural beach we want a beach that's covered in sand often we want the beach to be backed by trees you know we want um, a really natural system and so That's a real cultural difference between say Australia and the Netherlands and so uh, bringing people around to the idea of engineered solutions to protect infrastructure can be really challenging but of course there are you know that there are pros and cons to every solution you know there are there are going to be pros and cons to uh, managed retreat or planned retreat but there are also going to be pros and cons to um, strategies like hold the line where you try to maintain the shoreline where it is so everything is going to need to be weighed up and the community is going to have to be part of all these decisions and they're going to be difficult decisions and difficult conversations um
0: that social value is a really important point because a lot of what we've been talking about in this podcast is how important blue spaces and marine spaces are to people how many people now are interacting with these places whether it's through surfing or going to the beach or just the interest of their kids in these places it's like you say. it's part of our um our identity is that we're a beach country um we're a coastal absolutely. country so that societal changes would be a very big one to embrace um a very yeah. different look to our coast yeah absolutely
1: it's it's hugely challenging you know australia identifies as a coastal nation i think something like 80 percent of people in australia live within 50 kilometers of the coastline you know, we, we often have this idea that we're a sort of outback, lots of space kind of people, but actually we're not. We live in metropolitan cities and we live on the fringes of our country. And, you know, the idea of a summer beach holiday is such a, a seriously, um, it's a concept that is so well embedded in our national identity. And, you know, I think the summer that we've just had 2019-20 with the bushfires where, you know, in Victoria and New South Wales, so many people's summer holidays were so heavily impacted by the bushfire season. You know, people were evacuated from their holidays. I was evacuated. (laughs) Um, You know, it's, it's a real shift. And that, you know, was a, it was a real, um, I think it was a real wake up call for a lot of people that maybe things are not actually going to be how they've been before and that we've taken We've taken this for granted somewhat.
0: Yeah. And that's an, an interesting uh, interesting kind of juxtaposition in time as well. Um, if we're already seeing coastal erosion impacting our, our fringe living on the, the water's edge and societies change slowly. Um, what What's coming in the next few decades? How much time do we have to make that choice in different places as to whether we become more engineered or whether we retreat? Do we have a lot of time to make that decision?
1: Well, I think as the, the events of uh, the last few weeks have shown us in some places, the decision needs to be made now. Um, yeah. We've just had a big East Coast low. Uh, there's another uh, East Coast low forecast for this coming week at the time of recording. Mm-hmm. And that has the potential to have some serious impacts for some uh, mm-hmm. some infrastructure along our coastline. So in some places, the decision is, is exceptionally urgent. Uh, in other places, there is more time. Um, but as with anything, the sooner you plan and the better you get, the sooner you get strategies in place, the better you're going to be in the long run.
0: Yeah. Some of your research has looked at sea levels of the past and what our coastlines have looked like over really long time spans. Does that help you and the people who do the kind of research that you do to inform those decisions about how do you prepare for the future if we know what um, how different our coastlines have been when sea levels have been really different?
1: Yeah, look, it absolutely can, you know. We've, we've seen sea level rise in the past, you know, 18,000 years ago, sea level was 120 metres lower than it is today. Off the coast of New South Wales, the shoreline, you know, if you're standing on a beach today, 18,000 years ago, the shoreline would have been between 20 and 50 kilometres further east of you. You know, So we've seen, this nation has seen sea level rise. The Indigenous people witnessed it and they have oral histories describing the sea level rise. Um, and so that can inform what we're seeing, but the difference of what's happening today is that sea level is rising so much more rapidly than it has in the past. And so it's it's a very different situation
0: in that space. I think that's a really nice point because when we hear about sea level rise, it sounds like small, like it doesn't sound like that much, you know, in how it's measured. But in the impact it has to things like waves and water movements, that's that's fast and a lot.
1: Yeah, and it's huge. And I think the thing that we often don't necessarily get across particularly well, or people struggle to understand, is that one metre of sea level rise doesn't mean the shoreline translates one metre landwards. You know, in a lot of areas, our coastal regions are very, very flat. So one metre of sea level rise might actually mean the shoreline translates 100 metres landward, or 150 metres, or even 200 metres landwards. So it's not It's not a direct correlation between the amount of sea level rise and the amount of shoreline movement, and that's very challenging to get across sometimes.
0: Yeah, particularly when, like you say, we're we're coastal dwellers, we live at the fringe, and, and that's a long movement inland.
1: It's huge, absolutely, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Hannah, the other area of research that um, you have done a lot of work in is tsunamis and, um, and how we can predict and prepare for changes in our underwater seascape that happen quite dramatically and what are the consequences to, um, to our coastlines. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about um, tsunami risk for Australia and how, how can we prepare
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Australia is relatively lucky. We have a relatively low tsunami risk compared to other countries around the world. Um, Globally, about three quarters of the tsunami that we see are generated by underwater earthquakes, where the crust of the earth shifts. It shifts the water above it and then a wave radiates outwards from there. So Australia sits in the middle of a tectonic plate. And so those tectonic plate boundaries, when those tsunami generating earthquakes occur are relatively far away from our coast. So for example, um, the nearest places to us on the east coast are the plate boundaries to the north and south of New Zealand, on the northwest coast we're exposed to the plate boundaries that run along the Indonesian archipelago. So. That's one of the risks and that is a risk. Um, We did see, we saw some impacts from the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami here in Australia. So that was generated um, on that plate tectonic boundary that runs along Indonesia. We saw some relatively minor impacts from the 2011 Tohoku tsunami that had a huge impact on Japan. Um, And uh, back in 1960, there was a huge earthquake off the coast of Chile And that was recorded at the tide gauge in Sydney Harbour as having waves of over 80 centimetres within Sydney Harbour. So that's a really sizable wave to have made it all the way across the Pacific Ocean. Um, So earthquake-generated tsunamis, as I said, represent about three quarters of the tsunami that we see around the world. More locally, however, there's a risk to Australia from uh, tsunami generated by underwater landslides. And we're talking about really, really big landslides. So they might be sort of uh, blocks of sediment that might be, say, five by five kilometers in dimension and, say, 200 meters thick. This sediment is being shed off our continental slope in depths between 500 and uh, 1200 meters, say, and this material is moving down slope. And as it moves, it generates a wave that can radiate outwards. So now, the difference between those, the impacts of those types of tsunamis and earthquake generated tsunamis for Australia is that the, uh, the process that generates the tsunami is much, much closer to our shorelines. And so the time difference between when the tsunami is generated and when it reaches our coast is much less. So for the east coast of Australia, as I said, the closest uh, tsunamigenic uh, subduction zones are to the north and south of New Zealand. We'd get about a two-hour, one-and-a-half to two-hour warning. And, you know, we have systems in place that monitor for earthquakes, They look at where the earthquake has occurred, how big it is, how deep it is, and assess whether or not there's a tsunami risk. And if there is, we have a system in Australia that will provide an alert, if there is a tsunami risk, for earthquake generated tsunami. For submarine landslide generated tsunami, however, we don't have a system in place. And so there is a residual risk there. The anticipated time between when uh, the submarine landslide would occur and the tsunami wave hitting the coast is of the order of 15 to 20 minutes. So we're talking about something really close by that yeah. could have really significant but relatively localised impacts. We would expect typically maybe between, depending on the size of the tsunami, between 50 and sort of 200 to 250 kilometres of coast would be affected. So they're yeah. much more localised impacts rather than the earthquake generated tsunami which tend to have much larger impacts in terms of scale. Yeah.
0: And um, and what does those kind of waves look like? Um, are they different to, are they two different kinds of waves that are created? Yeah, so the, uh, the tsunami waves that we would see will look
1: really, really different from the waves that we see every day on the coastline. So the waves we see every day along our coasts, um, you know, might have uh, wave periods of somewhere between 5 and 15 seconds. So every 5 to 15 seconds you get another wave. The wave period for a tsunami wave varies from something like 10 minutes up to half an hour. So rather than the water coming up and going back every five to 15 seconds, it's coming up for half an hour and then it's going back for half an hour. Now, depending on the way the tsunami is generated, sometimes you see the water draw down. So you would see the shoreline recede. It would look like the tide was going out really, really rapidly. If you see that, that's a really bad sign go to high ground. Um, sometimes that won't happen though. And the tsunami, the crest of the wave will come in first. So, you know, in terms of um, tsunami safety, mm-hmm. heed any warnings that you were given. <laughs> if you get an alert to your phone from your state emergency service that says there's a tsunami alert out, you need to go to high ground, go to high ground. Don't go down to the beach to watch. <laughs> um, and then what we think is a likely trigger for the submarine landslide tsunamis, so the ones that we where we won't get a warning necessarily, we think the most likely trigger for those is a localized earthquake. So if you're at the beach and you feel a really big earthquake, again go to high ground. That's the best advice we can give for those.
0: And again, this is really applied use of your research is uh, understanding how the water responds and developing systems that can help protect people and warn people and um, educate them about what what these wave movements um, do along our coastline, whether they're big waves or, or small waves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things that I find so rewarding about my job is that I can try and solve these really interesting science problems, but actually do something that where I can really immediately see this is going to have an impact on people's lives. It's going to have an impact on whether or not we keep people safe. And that's an exceptionally rewarding part of my job.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's absolutely amazing. And I'm sure that there's um, kids out there who are studying, particularly those who loves, who love maths, but who also love the natural environment. I mean, what kind of skills um, do young people need to develop to try and follow this this path that that you've taken?
1: I think one of the most critical skills in terms of becoming a coastal geoscientist um, like me is actually observational skills, you know, going down to the beach, looking, look at what's there, look at how it was different to yesterday or different to last week when you went, You know, look at how do the waves look different? Are they bigger? Are they smaller? Are the crests of the waves closer together? Are they further apart? All of these things are really, really critical skills. And, you know, they're skills that are really, you know, easy to develop. It's just practice. It's going down and looking and seeing how the environment is changing and and trying to make links between, oh, you know, yesterday I came down to the beach and the waves were small and they were quite a long way apart and the beach was very flat and then today I've come down to the beach and the waves are bigger and the beach is looking you know the shoreline is further landwards, and you know there's been some erosion I can see evidence of recent erosion so you know and starting to put those links together in your head how how do how does the water movement affect the environment that I'm looking at I think they're the really sort of you know they're the easy skills to start to start to practice
0: that's fantastic uh before you say do the sign-off, I just want to ask out of interest, is there any um, citizen science programs that you run or that you're involved in that people who are interested can can get involved? I I don't run any,
1: but there yeah. is um,
0: there's a citizen
1: science program called CoastSnap, which uh, has set up um, and it's a, it's a joint project between the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment and the uh, Water Research Laboratory at UNSW. And they've set up metal mounts where you can put your phone in, you can take a photo of the beach and you can upload it to social media. And they do some uh, science trickery in the background Mm -hmm. and they're able to look at how the shoreline has moved based on all the different photos that people upload and send in. And so we're able to get information about how beaches change just from people taking photos of the beach.
0: Nice. Um, That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Hannah. It has been really interesting to hear about all your work and absolutely amazing to hear about all the different systems that you work in. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Tracy. Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces.